You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, Episode 4. Today we kick off with a quarterly discussion on the buys and sells within Warren Buffett's nearly $200 billion Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. Ryan rants on one of Keystone's red flags, stocks that try to grow too fast. And in our Stars and Dogs of the Week, we review Concordia Healthcare and Boyd Group. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter, at Keystocks, and Facebook. Now let's dig into the show. I would like to welcome again my co-host, Keystone's senior equity analyst, a father of one, and a man who made it into the office this morning in a personal best time of 9 minutes and 43 seconds, in the process setting a new Olympic record, but missing the world mark by two-tenths of a second, Mr. Aaron Dunn. Thank you, Ryan. It's an interesting week in the markets. A lot of Q2 results out on the wire and uh, just lots, lots to talk about, so I'm looking forward to getting into this. Yeah, me too. Now, for those who are unfamiliar um, or less familiar with our show and our research, we are big fans of Warren Buffett's investment style. Um, now, if you're unfamiliar with Warren Buffett, from an analyst or investment perspective, I say pull your head out of your butt and maybe pay attention. Now, with a net worth of over $60 billion, which is greater than the annual GP of countries like Costa Rica, Croatia, and Serbia, Forbes ranks Buffett as the third richest person on the planet. Now, part of our research thought, philosophy and strategy is based on Warren Buffett's investment philosophy himself. Now, we track his transactions quite closely. Ryan, I'm, I'm going to actually interject here before you go on because you, you talked about uh, Warren Buffett's vast fortune of $60 billion. So I just want to put that into perspective for people before we continue here so we can understand a little more about the man. Um, we need to take into account here that he did not start with a large sum or a big name to, to grow his vast fortune. Um, a, a little known fact is that Warren Buffett started his first investment funds from an office in his bedroom with just his own personal capital and some small sums from friends and family. And aside from the fact that he has a great head for investing, he didn't start off with any resources that weren't available to anybody else at the time. And he actually produced better returns back then than he does today. Yeah, which is tremendous. And one of the things uh, today, he says, uh, his biggest advantage back then was size or lack thereof. Uh, smaller investors, he believes, and we believe as well, have a big advantage because you can buy um, growthier stocks and smaller companies that have the potential to grow over time. At this point, you know, Buffett looks at a billion or $2 billion market cap, and that doesn't even move the needle on his fund. He has to buy behemoths. It's hard for a company with 400 billion in revenues to double that but you know if you look at a company with 10 or 50 million you can double that over a reasonable period so we believe that small investors and small cap investors have an advantage on that end of the market when you can look at these smaller companies that have uh, higher growth potential now one thing we're going to do on the show is on a quarterly basis look at uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio um, it's made publicly available the, through Berkshire Hathaway. The, the symbol is BRKH.A. It trades on the New York Stock Exchange, the company. Uh, but they just released their uh, quarterly holdings for the period ended June 30th, 2016. Now, what makes this interesting 
for Warren Buffett fans is there have been some relatively significant individual stock position changes in the Buffett portfolio uh, over the past few quarters. Now, Berkshire Hathaway came out re in recent weeks. Uh, its total uh, equity securities listed on the balance sheet was at, at around one, $102 billion. Now, at the end of that qu quarter, the second quarter of the year, June 30th, his portfolio uh, equity investments were $129 billion. So the company has sold uh, just recently in the last month or so in the recent future about $27 billion of stock. Now while these changes are noteworthy, investors should also keep in mind that approximately 61% of the aggregate or fair value of the common stock is concentrated in his portfolio in four companies alone. That would be Wells Fargo with a weighting of $23.7 billion. IBM with a $12.3 billion weighting, Coca-Cola at $18.1 billion, and American Express in the $9.2 billion range. Uh, these are what we call Buffett's Big Four, and there was no major change here. And, and this is something, this is one of the tenets, I think, Ron, you'd agree, that we, that we take from Warren Buffett, is that Warren Buffett does not want to over-diversify, oh, no. and neither do we. Warren Buffett is... is, is he prefers to focus his his investments on a smaller number of of strong companies that he vets through through diligent research, as opposed to buying several dozen companies or several hundred companies like most investment funds too. And that is one of the things that he thinks that has made him successful. And and we would agree with that. For most people as well, it's very difficult to to manage a uh, a portfolio that's that's got more than you know twenty twenty five companies in it. Um, which is why we've always said to focus on eight to ten or twelve individual companies. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's it's a great way, a great teaching tool. Looking at his at his portfolio and what, something we've taken uh, definitely to heart in our investment philosophy is uh, you know you need some diversification, but you know he his one of his favorite quotes is over diversification is for those who don't know what they're doing. And uh, you want to make good bets on the company you've done a ton of research in, and, and that's what he does. And you can see four companies, over 61% of that portfolio is, is a lot of concentration, but he has uh, a ton of confidence in those companies, and they've served him well over time. Now, uh, of the big four positions, IBM, Coca-Cola, American Express, uh, were all listed at the same uh, as they were in the last quarter. Now, his position in well for, Wells Fargo sorry, has increased ever so slightly. And this appears to be a position that Buffett may continue to add on into infinity, really. I guess you could say infinity for someone in his mid-80s. But interestingly, they, the portfolio had a few strong ads or buys in the quarter. Phillips 66, which is a New York stock exchange listed, uh, it's similar as PSX. It's a midstream energy refiner, one of the largest in uh, North America. It increased his stake to 78.78 million shares. Um, as of March 31st, he was at about 75 million. So he's, that stake has steadily risen. One of the major additions was uh, Apple, uh, AAPL on the NASDAQ, uh, of course, the maker of everything I, iPhone, iPad, um, and uh, Apple Pay, which is a tremendous uh, new service that the company is offering now. They increased the stake, 15.2 million shares, uh, worth some 1.4 billion. The stake uh, in Apple was a new position. He's just added this position really in March. Uh, it, it was listed at 9.8 million shares. 
uh, and worth around a billion at the time. So this is a significant purchase that he's made uh, and, and a new investment in Apple at this and, time. And, and, and it makes perfect sense for Buffett. Uh, it's a great brand, great balance sheet, great cash flow, relatively long-term track record of success. And um, others are counting its best days behind it, which is often something that Warren Buffett likes to see. He's some people are saying that it's not the most exciting story on the street and Warren Buffett, what excites him is, is the cash flow. So it, it makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense from, uh, from his perspective. And I, I think it makes sense uh, as a purchase as well. Um, now, some of the decreased positions or positions that Buffett has recently sold out of the portfolio, um, Procter & Gamble. PG on the New York Stock Exchange is uh, a much lower stake. There's just 315,000 shares left, um, which is the same as this time in March. But we know this because uh, there had previously been almost 52 million shares that had been held. And Procter & Gamble once peaked in the portfolio at 96 million shares. So the stock has been almost entirely sold off from a historical perspective. Uh, another sell is on Canadian energy giant Suncor, uh, SU on the New York Stock Exchange, of course it's also traded in Canada, was a lower stake at 22.2 million shares. It had been an up as high as 30 million previously. Uh, so there's a, a sell-off in the last year of shares there. Walmart, uh, WMT on the New York Stock Exchange, was a stake taken down by more than 15 million shares to 40.2 million. As at the end of June, that stake was at 56 million uh, at the end of 2015 and was down from 60 million at the end of last year in June, sorry, a year ago. It was raised, the stake was raised in 2015, but he's cut that position here. Now, the takeaway here is he's sold more shares than he's bought over the, in the recent past. Uh, the other takeaway, though, is there's about 40 individual names in here. Those four are a huge portion of it, but there's 40 individual companies. Uh, the vast majority held the same position. So, in other words, Buffett's a long-term investor who does not change a ton from quarter to quarter. It's fun and, and good and instructive to note the individual changes that are in the portfolio, but really, you know, the takeaway here is he holds these positions for long term. He's done a ton of research on these companies and there's not a ton of change really overall in the portfolio. Yeah, and the last thing that we want people to do is try and is chase the companies that Warren Buffett buys just because he bought them. You're not you don't want to try and replicate Warren Buffett. If you try and replicate what he does, you're gonna be disappointed. And he has his own reasons for buying stocks. You you went into it as well. He's he employs a lot of capital and he has to he has a minimum investment threshold and He's very limited in terms of what he can actually buy. He needs to focus on big companies. Most of the time, he's bu he's buying entire companies, and when he's buying just positions in companies, they they tend to tend to be very large, uh, very large stakes. So, the the purpose of of following what he does is not trying to replicate it exactly. It's trying to get a sense of what does he look at in a stock and what are his investing habits and. We talked about two here that are very important, and one is that he focuses on a relatively small number of, of stocks, puts his, his stock portfolio in a relatively small number of names. And second, there's there's low turnover. He buys things and he holds them for, for longer periods of time, allowing those companies to continue to grow and add value to shareholders. Yeah, that's an excellent summary. Um, I think we're going to, I know now we're going to make that a, a consistent part of the show on a quarterly basis. We're going to review the uh, 
buys and sells and the changes in his portfolio. It's very instructive over time. Now we're going to get into my rant. It's time for Ryan's Rant. This week's rant centers around some red flag or a red flag that we see when we look at companies. And this is companies that try to grow too fast. Now that may sound curious, particularly from an analyst that specializes in finding great growth stocks. So how can we penalize a company for growing too fast? It kind of sounds counterintuitive, but I guess I'll clarify that now. First, there are different ways for a company to grow. The two primary ways are organic growth and inorganic growth. Now, I'll define organic growth as increased input from your existing business, essentially selling more of your own widgets or creating new widgets in-house to sell. Or in the case of, say, a service business, you're just expanding your customer base. This growth, while tougher to come by, is great. And in most cases, if well-managed, uh, the higher the better. We're really not talking about having a problem this time. This type of growth. It's the type of growth we find is scarce right now in the market, but we'll get to that later. Now, inorganic growth is essentially growth by merger or acquisition. In principle, we don't have a problem with this strategy. Again, if it is well thought out, well executed, and over a reasonable amount of time, which is key, uh, we have actually seen it executed very well with a number of our long-term buys uh, in our small cap focus portfolio and in our income stock portfolios. Um, in fact, two of the longest standing positions in our Canadian focus buy portfolio have used this strategy with staggering success. And Aaron will, and I will talk about one of these companies as our star of the week later in this podcast. But we have also seen it executed staggeringly poorly with disastrous results for individual portfolios. And, and we've seen that play out uh, in recent weeks um, to somewhat of a degree in companies like Concordia and Valiant, but definitely in companies, small caps that we follow, like the highly promoted patient home monitoring and loyalist. Um, in terms of, say, patient home monitoring, initially had great share price gains as revenues grew, but the unsustainability of the model, uh, making six to seven acquisitions over an eight, nine-month period and trying to integrate all those companies into the fold, people got excited initially, but if you look up the share, uh, the share chart on patient home monitoring, they've crashed over the past year. Now... The quote-unquote growth by acquisition strategy, when done poorly, we typically see multiple large acquisitions relative to the acquiring company uh, over a short period of time. Again, say four acquisitions over a six-month period or five to six in a year. This is a huge red flag for us. I mean, it can look good on the top line, but if you're not increasing per share, cash flow per share, earnings per share, growth, it doesn't work. It's a house of cards. Now, there's three issues we have with this strategy. Number one, in the case, in these cases, it's typically done by issuing shares to pay for the acquisition. There's no real discipline to generate cash flow or a lack of a track record to issue debt to pay for the acquisition opportunity. So this strategy is very tough. You're relying on high valuation in the public market. So you're relying on a positive or good feeling overall in the market. And and a lower valuation in the private market. And you need that to integrate that private business to 
relatively seamlessly to generate a high rate of return on the capital employed to justify the, the dilution from the shares issued to make the transaction what we call a creative or positive in terms of profitability. That is far tougher than what it seems. It's tougher to even say. But um, note the implosions of, like I said, patient home monitoring and loyalist over the past two years as great examples of this strategy completely imploding. Number two issue we have with this strategy, when making this many company changing acquisitions over such a short period of time, we find that due diligence on the acquiring acquisition suffers. Companies do not take long enough to essentially look under the hood and they make poor acquisitions inevitably. Now number three, it is incredibly difficult to successfully integrate new employees and new culture effectively, especially in the near and midterm. I mean, even from personal experience, I know it's tough to integrate 10 staff with a five staff operation. Now, sometimes it just doesn't work. In many cases, though, we see companies trying to add hundreds and hundreds of staff or more, you know, over a month or two month periods and then making that same type of acquisition as uh, another 100 or 200 staff. It's a very difficult process. Now, growth by acquisition is a difficult strategy and must be executed with patience. Cash used to execute the strategy should be at least partially coming from internally generated cash flow rather than dilutive share issuances. Now this strategy will take time and that's the key thing here. Uh, companies that we have seen this strategy employed very well over time and employed in well over time like Eng House, uh, ESL on the TSX and Boyd Group built their growth stories over 5 and 10 years not 5 and 10 months. In the end, the greater size of a company did not lead to higher per share profits in companies like patient home monitoring and loyalist. While executed with, you know, these companies execute the strategy with short-term greed and use countless dilutive share financing, the results can turn out very negative fast, and they have. And we've avoided stocks like this over time. Exactly, and I think you're not say you're not necessarily saying that all growth by acquisition is a bad thing because we have seen companies like you've said grow via acquisition and grow aggressively via acquisition but really when it comes to a growth through acquisition strategy you need to see that it's that it's accretive growth you need to see that that it's not just revenue that's growing it's not just earnings on the bottom line that's growing but actual earnings per share and i think that's the problem with a lot of these companies is either they were never profitable and they were making these acquisitions and always projecting profitability in the future that never seemed to come to fruition or they were profitable but they weren't actually growing their per share profitability through through acquisitions or they were unacceptably levering up their their balance sheet with with debt yeah i mean and we've seen companies do it correctly i mean one of the one of the textbook examples is Eng House ESL on the TSX, which we've recommended for the past five years. Um, now, it's a software, uh, software and software as a service company in the call center and web-enabled uh, service department. Now, this company, f to give you an example, they may make two to five acquisitions in a year, but you know they'll spend fifty to sixty million dollars in cash to do that. Now they'll generate from the existing business 50 to 60 million in cash. So at the end of the year, they still have that hoard of cash sitting there, even though they're spending that money. They're spending out of cash flow and they have a ton of cash on the balance sheet. So they're not issuing any shares. I mean, in fact, if you look back five, six years, the company has basically the same share count now that it did then. 
despite the fact that it's grown operations tremendously. Uh, and that's how you end up growing per share cash flow and per share earnings, which is key. It's just very difficult if you're issuing shares and trying to get a higher return on the capital employed by making an acquisition at a cheaper price and bringing it into the public markets. It, you know, especially we've seen it implode over time. It's a delicate tightrope that they walk. We'd rather have companies either, you know, employ cheap debt that are generating cash flow or just use the cash they have on hand and, and be patient. You can't, Rome wasn't built in a day. Why do we have to build a company in two to three months to a year when you can build a tremendously successful company like Boyd uh, over a nine-year period and you know, have tremendous returns? So the takeaway, the takeaway for me here is that you, you, there's, there's essentially a formula when it comes to, to, to investment. And the investment decision process doesn't end with that formula, but it certainly begins with it. And that formula is to focus on easy to understand businesses, businesses that are understandable, that are generating positive cash flow from current operations, and that are reinvesting that capital, that cash flow back into their operations to generate growth on a per share basis. Yeah, and you're starting to sound like Warren The Buffett more you there, buy right? companies like <laughs> that, the more you buy companies like that, the better you will do over time. The more you focus on companies that are a lot of hype, uh, the more risk you take over time. Agreed. So now we're going to get into our dog of the week. From our stars and dogs segment, it's time for this week's dog. And that is Concordia International, CXR on the TSX. It's a specialty pharmaceutical comp- company that uh, owns a portfolio of branded and generic prescription drugs in the U.S. and internationally. Um, the company disappointed this past week uh, with Q2 results, which were released on August 12th. Uh, the stock immediately dropped 25% after the release of the second quarter results and has now dropped almost another 30% in the last couple days since then. But over the last year, the stock is now down 90%. Now, it was once a darling of Bay Street, with the shares moving from $7.60 at the start of 2014, you know, just over two years ago, to over $110 just in last September. Now, since then, it has literally fallen off a cliff. Now, I'm, we looked at the Q2 results, and at face value, on an adjusted basis, I mean, there's probably the problem, but they look quite good. Revenue is actually up over 200% since last year. They took a huge net loss, however, in the quarter, but on a per share basis, adjusted earnings were up 24%. Um, right now, the stock is trading at about four times adjusted earnings for the past six months. Now, some of the fundamentals may look good here, but obviously the market thinks that this dog has a serious flea problem. Aaron, I know that you looked you know, rather closely at this company several months back and that you have again looked at them. And again, we thank you for not recommending them to our clients. But what's going on here? So there's, there's several things going on. So first of all, just looking at the business, they're, they're not a pharmaceutical company in the conventional sense of the word. They actually, rather than developing their own products and then selling them, what they do is they go out and they purchase other products and sell those. So they're, they're somewhat of a, people are referred to them somewhat of a financing company. And they've been painted with a brush 
um, the same brushes, uh, the company that they actually came out of, which is Valiant Pharmaceuticals. And this company has been highly criticized um, by the U.S. government in particular for buying drugs, um, increasing the prices at exponential rates, essentially, and then, then, then reselling those drugs with little value add. So they've been, they've been brought in front of Senate committees and whatnot, and their share price is in a similar situation. But a lot of companies in this sector are being painted with that brush. Concordia is, is very closely affiliated or was with, with Valiant, so they're, they're taking uh, a lot of the brunt off of that. But just looking at Concordia itself, even when you, you, you know, take the market sentiment out of it, I, I took a look at the company very seriously late last year, late in 2015, and at that point it was trading about $42. It was down 60% at the time, and there's a few things that stood out to me specifically that dissuaded me from wanting to invest in the company. So one was the high debt level, uh, very high debt level. I don't remember what it was at the time, but right now I believe it's around uh, $3.4 billion dollars. Last year, they only did, I think, about 350, 400 million in revenue for the year. So that, that's, a, that's a very high debt level. So that was the first thing that really, really kind of scared me when I was looking at the stock. Um, the, it was cash flow positive at the time. There is a lot of growth expected from the company. Um, mind you, that was, once again, they, were, they, they adjust a lot of things out. They were, they were looking forward. But um, the, it did look good on a number of levels financially um, outside of the debt, but it is an extremely complicated business and there are just a lot of moving parts to that business and it was incredibly difficult to get any kind of a handle on exactly where the risk was or how sustainable the 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 earnings were, or how achievable the growth projections were. And when you're, you're dealing with a company like that, I, it, it's like we said before, you, you wanna deal with companies that are simple businesses that are generating positive cash flow today and reinvesting that in the business. This is one that was a highly complicated business and it was doing a lot of acquisitions, but those were primarily financed with debt, which is why the debt balance is so high. So I don't know if they have any debt right now that is that is coming up for renewal, but with the situation um, that they're in in the market right now with such negative market sentiment, they could have problem refinancing some of that debt. I don't know if that's the case right now, but you know, just given given the situation that they're in, um, I could potentially look back, look past market sentiment problems. If I could, I can look past market sentiment as long as the underlying fundamentals aren't strong. And but I just I I did not get the feeling that the underlying fundamentals were strong. Uh, yeah, I mean, for that reason, I just I, I I did not think it was a good investment at the time, and thank goodness once again because it was forty two forty two dollars a share back then, down from one hundred and ten, um, in less than a year before, and then since then it's been down I think about another three quarters. So it's obviously the market is not liking it, continuing not to like it. Yeah, and I think it builds on our theme, one of our themes today, just talking about. Relatively simple businesses, uh, Concordia is not, um, and less debt. Uh, there's just a hell of a lot of leverage in this business, and it adds a, a level of list, a risk that we often don't like to take. There's plenty of businesses out there that are that are easier to understand. They're not low-laying fruit. They're not available all the time, but if you're out there looking for them, they do pop up, and, and those are the types of businesses that, that we like. Uh, this This was not one of them. But speaking of things that we like, we will move on to our star, 
And Ryan, you did talk a little bit about this company um, in your rant, I believe, and I'll give you a chance to talk about it a little bit more. From our Stars and Dogs segment, it's time for this week's Star. The company we're going to talk about today and our star, our star today is Boyd Group Income Fund. Symbol is BYD.UN. And Keystone has had this under coverage in the small cap research for almost nine years. So a lot of people will be familiar with the Boyd Auto Body and Glass brand. Uh, they, have, they have auto body and glass repair locations all throughout North America. They just released their second quarter results on August 12th. Sales increased 18.8% to $331 million. Same store sales increased 5.1%. Adjusted net earnings per unit were $0.77, cents, up 12% for the quarter. For the first six months of the year, adjusted net earnings were up 26%. The stock is trading right now at $85. The market cap, which is the total market value of the company right now, is $1.5 billion dollars. Some people might look at a $1.5 billion company and think, what is this doing in a small cap research firm? What, why, why is a small cap research firm looking at this company? $1.5 billion isn't really a small cap. But when we recommended the company back in November of 2007, it was actually a micro cap. It had a total market value of only $30 million. So the company's grown in size from $30 million to over $1.5 billion in nine years. And when we recommended it, it was trading at $2.30. The company has since paid dividends per share of over $3 in addition to the 3,600% uh, share price return in that period. Now, I, I, Ryan, I use the, I, I gotta give you, I gotta give you full respect on this. I say, I say that we recommended, when we recommended the company, I'm using that term loosely. This was a company you recommended back then, it was all you. Why don't you, why don't you tell us what you saw in the company back then, what caused you to recommend it? What, what made it stand out? Well, thank you, of course. Uh, at the time, um, it's different times though, back in 2008, 2009, uh, in the financial crisis, we wanted, uh, although different as we just talked about today, the, the theme is simple businesses. But that, back then, we wanted simple businesses that we understood and had an element, and this is key, recession resistance to them. The business could not really be much simpler with Boyd. All they do is auto body repair and glass repair. Uh, people need to get from point A to point B, and if you damage your car, you need to get it fixed. Uh, often the repair is covered by insurance, right? So the company had a gro- great growth plan then. It's a mix of organic. I'll, I'll just, just before you continue, yeah. I'll, just, I'll just interject here. So you're saying a simple business, a simple, easy to understand yeah, business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely, Excellent. and with some recession-resistant qualities. And they had a great growth plan the mix of organic growth, which we like, with growth by acquisition. Uh, they, there were smaller shops then in a highly fragmented market that could be bought at reasonable prices and can still today, and they're optimized into the larger entity that Boyd provides. Now, with the share, I mean, we recently saw the share price come down in January to $60. Uh, and we actually recommended it as a buy again uh, just in January of that year. And it's $85, $86 today. And we see the stock getting more attention from the investment community at the start of the year. Now, I see some people coming out, you know, they'll talk to us at conferences or I'll get emails and, and I see it on BNN saying how Boyd is kind of an overnight success. But 
it's one of those overnight successes for us for sure that it seems 10 years in the making the company's acquisitions have been carefully made over a you know nine ten year period not a nine ten month period um and and management has done a great job on you know, using debt, using cash flow, um, and not really increasing the share count over that period. So, uh, any newly acquired earnings or new organic growth that led to higher earnings uh, went to the bottom line and went to higher per share cash flow, higher per share earnings, and and that's what's uh, that's what's driven the company long term. Uh, they've also benefited. I mean, they have just under 40 shops in Canada, but, you know, the total amount is 300 and some odd in the U.S. Um, they've benefited from a weakening Canadian dollar of late and a strong U.S. dollar. Um, they've been a great way to play uh, that over the last several years. Um, we still like the stock here. We recently put a research update out on the stock just this past week. Now, this is our podcast. I can't tell you the contents of that research report. Our, uh, our clients obviously know. But, uh, you know, it, it's been a great long-term winner. And there's a plan out there for this company to double its operations over the next four and a half, five years. Uh, we believe they can do that. And, you know, if you're looking five years out, we still would like the company. So, essentially, you really could have bought this company at any point since you originally recommended it and you've been recommending it since then and you would have done well. Yeah, we've had a standing long-term buy on the stock and from time to time over the past nine years, I will highlight when it again is a near-term buy and an opportunity and almost every one of those times we've been rewarded uh, with higher share prices if you look a year out. So uh, It's the gift that just keeps it giving. Is. It's definitely not cheap right now on a fundamental basis, but you know the management has proven out their uh, history of using growth by acquisition, which is a theme today, uh, in the right way. And uh, we, we expect that to continue long term. Excellent. Well, good job on that. Thank you. Um, that'll conclude our podcast this week. Um, our podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.keystockspot.com. I want you to come back often. Feel free to add your podcast or this podcast to your favorite RRS feed uh, or on iTunes or you can follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook. Well, thank you for joining me again this week, Aaron. And I'm going to note that next week we release our 2016 Breakthrough Small Cap Report. So uh, clients, get ready for that. And anybody who wants to uh, get a hold of that report, we've got 25 growth stocks that have just turned into profitability or are turning around operations into profitability that we're highlighting there and a couple new recommendations within the report. So uh, if you want to get your hands on that, you got to become a client. I'll be keeping an eye out for that one too, Ron. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. Profitable investing.